For 364 days shall you work, but on the 365th day you shall have no work. It is a Mother's Day. (laughs) Amen. So let it be written. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day to our mothers. Glad that you're here worshiping with us. When you join the military and go to, go to boot camp, one of the very first things they do is give you a military uniform. You take off your old clothes and you put on the new uniform. You get a nice haircut, whatever you would like, as long as it's really short. Uh, and everyone looks the same. You've left your old life. You've joined the, a new life, that of a soldier. Uh, You're trained to look and think and act like a soldier, and you can tell that these men or women are soldiers simply by looking at them. In our text today, Paul addresses how Christians have taken off one set of clothes and put on a new set of clothes. We were identified with the old self, and now we're identified with the new self, with Christ. And our identification with Christ is central to how we think and act, and live. So go ahead and turn to Colossians, if you would, in your Bibles. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 984, page 984. The New Testament begins about two-thirds of the way through your Bibles. You have the four four or five really narrative books, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. And then we have 13 letters by the Apostle Paul, Right in the middle of those is Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, beginning, we're going to begin reading today in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not... Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray together. God our Father, may this be true of us, that Christ is all and in all. May Our desire be Christ, may our meditation be Christ, may our hope be Christ. As we study your word right now, Lord, help us to set aside our distractions, our frustrations, our concerns, and help us to rejoice in who you are and in what you've done for us. 
We ask that the Spirit would come and would open our hearts and minds to understand your truth, to open our hearts to want to listen, to want to truly hear and to obey. Help us to see, for those who know you, help us to see that we have put off the old self and we have put on the new self. And because of that, we are to live as people who represent Christ. Lord, may we seek to honor and glorify you in our lives. Father, these are not things that can be understood by natural minds. And so, again, we ask that the Spirit would move. You would move in us to bring us to a knowledge of the truth. And Lord, where there are those here who do not know you, we ask that you would open their hearts even for the first time to understand their sin, to understand the gospel, to understand that Christ saves sinners, to understand that Christ is Lord of all, and that one day he's returning for a joyful eternity for his people and for certain judgment for all who stand against him. Lord, help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. In Colossians 1 and 2, Paul has built the case that Christ is all glorious, that he is the center of everything, that every individual part of the cosmos exists as it relates to Christ, that Christ is fully God, that he reconciles the universe to God, and particularly his people to God. Christ is God's mystery, hidden for ages past, but now revealed. And through the cross, he unites all people in the church, all people who trust in him. We were dead in sin, in darkness, living in and loving the kingdom of Satan. But by faith, God made us alive with Christ, transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Our record of debt is canceled. Our sin is nailed to the cross paid by Jesus. And in his resurrection from the dead, God raised us from the dead. So that Jesus' life became our life. His death became our death. His resurrection became our resurrection. And that's true for everyone who has repented of their sin and believed in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul takes these truths and he begins applying them to our daily lives. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So if you have been raised with Christ and all Christians have been raised with Christ, then live for him. Seek the things of his kingdom. Pursue Christ. Honor Christ in your life. And then we saw last week that this life of seeking the things of God requires putting sin to death. And Paul lists out there various shades of sexual sin, put to death what is earthly in you. We have this solemn warning that on account of these things, sins and sins like them, the wrath of God is coming. Our righteous God is filled with fury against sins like these. And we once walked in these sins when we lived in the kingdom of darkness, but now that we're the kingdom of light, we must put these sins to death. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. 
And that brings us to our passage this morning, Colossians 3, verses 8 through 11. And our main point is this, live with Christ as all and in all. Live with Christ as all and in all. And we'll see two key themes about what it means to live with Christ as all and in all. First, put away sin. Put away sin. And second, and directly connected, live based on your new identity in Christ. Live based on your new identity in Christ. Let's begin with that first theme, put away sin. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Paul already told them, to put sin to death and specifically confronted sexual sin. Here, Paul addresses relational sins within the church, specifically sins related to anger and the results of anger. These are all sins which will destroy relationship in the church, which will destroy um, community in the church. Paul begins with this overarching command to put these sins away. These sins cling to us, they hold fast to us, and to be honest, we cling to them and hold fast to them. And Paul says, now we must put them away. Don't let them be connected with you. Don't let these sins be part of you. Put them away. If you have been raised with Christ, live for him and put these sins away. Now, a few of these sins kind of group together. We'll list them together. First, put away anger and wrath. Put away anger and wrath. Now, at one point, there was a small distinction in these words between sort of hot wrath and a cool anger. The hot wrath is the person who blows up, yelling, screaming, their face turns bright red. Everybody knows they're angry, and you don't dare cross them. The cool anger is the person who may never yell or scream, but they just give you the silent treatment, just sitting there with an icy glare, And inside, they're just seething with anger. By the time of the New Testament, these words are used fairly interchangeably. They're really synonyms. So the main point here is just that all kinds of anger are included. It's easy for us to identify that explosive anger. You can't miss it. Uh, But maybe your anger is more the quiet kind. And it's still just as much sin, even if you can control your external appearance. You've just accomplished some measure of self-control or you just don't get angry in that particular kind of way. It is good not to have explosive anger, but the less explosive kind is still sin. And if your heart pursues that sinful anger, that's where you need to focus your self-control. We need to put that sin away. Put away anger. God's people should not be defined by anger. Anger should not control us. So when you do get angry, and I presume that you do get angry, Uh, When you do, after you calm down, spend some time examining your heart. What made me angry? And we can't blame something or someone else besides ourselves. Anger is ultimately a choice that we make. No one makes you angry. No thing makes you angry. Someone else could be in the exact same situation you were just in, and they could not be angry. So it isn't the person or the thing I make myself angry. I choose 
to respond in anger. And so I have to figure out, well, what situation uh, caused a spark in my heart that I turned into sinful anger, and, and why did I let it contribute to anger in my heart? Perhaps someone said something offensive to me. Perhaps someone damaged something that was important to me. Okay, well, why is this thing so important that when it gets damaged, I get angry? Uh, Maybe it's an idol in your life. Or or why did those words stir up anger in my heart? Uh, Do I have so much pride in my heart that I can't be confronted? Uh, Maybe I just care too much about what other people say and think. Whatever the source of anger is, you have to deal with that source of anger in your heart. You know, there are many ways humans are distinct and different, but anger is really common to mankind. We don't all get angry in the same way, but we do all get angry. Maybe you recognize your own tendency to anger. You know, it's not good, but it seems all-consuming. One minute you're fine, the next minute you're flying off the handle. And it is your heart that wants things that makes you respond like that. And your only hope to deal with anger and with all the other sins you deal with is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was never sinfully angry. And just think about that for a minute. He was never sinfully angry. That's almost impossible for me to fathom. Jesus is our example, and God tells us that. First Peter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus had lots of opportunities for sinful anger, but he was never sinfully angry. And thus he's able to stand in our place. His blood covers our sin for everyone who believes in him. I wonder if there maybe are other people in the church that you are holding anger against. Some unresolved strife you've never let go of. Every time you think about it, it gets you angry. God says, put that anger away. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now we flip that around, right? Too often we are slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger. God tells us, put away anger and wrath. Also, put away malice. Uh, malice is a desire to harm others. It's the overflow of anger, of anger. We're angry at someone, and thus we want harm to come to them. And perhaps, hopefully, you've never physically wanted to harm someone, and yet, maybe in your heart, you did want evil to come to them. Maybe you wanted to hurt them emotionally. 
you want them to feel bad for what they've done. That's still malice. Or maybe you've planned an argument with someone in your mind. Like you had some disagreement and then you you went away for the day or the week and then you knew you were going to see them and the whole time you're planning the argument you're going to finish with them. That's malice. If you have a brother or sister, you have probably experienced malice. Uh, They took something that belonged to you. Maybe they broke it. Maybe they even did it on purpose. And so you go into their room You look around, oops, you just broke their favorite toy. Oops, that important game piece is just missing suddenly. That desire to cause pain, that's malice. I'm a very competitive person. I like to win. I don't like to lose. And when I was younger, I often had a lot of malice against anybody I was competing against. After all, they're trying to beat me. Who do they think they are? We have to be careful that we don't let competition turn into malice. Jesus Christ was never malicious towards his opponents. He was gracious and kind. And if if we are raised with Christ, we too can be gracious and kind. Put away malice. Slander. Slander is saying evil about another person. The slanderous things you say may be true or not, but you present them in a way that is intended to diminish, to undermine, or to harm this person that you're slandering. Slander causes damage to another person's reputation. Sometimes we slander people to their faces, and sometimes we slander them behind their backs. That's known as gossip. In the church, sometimes people try to hide their gossip by saying, we really need to pray for Betty because... And then you say this thing that you probably shouldn't be sharing. Children, have you ever accused someone of doing something to you on purpose? Even when you don't really know that they did it on purpose. Or when we're angry, sometimes we convince ourselves of how bad this other person really is. They're really bad. And we're slandering them in our hearts. And of course, when we're angry, when we're in the midst of an argument, we often throw insults at someone that are a form of slander. We make someone sound worse than they really are, so that rather than dealing with their actual sin, we can deal with the straw man of them that we've created. You always do this to me. You never take care of my things. That's slander. Put away slander. Now, obscene talk is abusive speech. It doesn't necessarily mean profanity, although that could be included in this kind of speech. Think of someone who's angry and they're really letting someone have it. That is abusive speech or obscene talk speech that hurts others. Oftentimes people will say incredibly hurtful things in the midst of their anger and then later they'll say, well, I, I was just angry. Yes, you were sinfully angry and your sinful anger resulted in abusive speech. But that isn't an excuse for abusive speech. In Matthew 18, excuse me, Matthew 15, verse 18, Jesus taught what comes from the mouth comes from the heart. Those things you said are coming from your heart. James teaches us the same thing. Uh, James 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions 
are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Why do we have fights and quarrels? Why do we say hurtful things to others? It's because we covet what we don't have. We have heart idols and we will kill with our words to obtain them. Right? You, maybe you want respect and you don't get respect, so you get angry. Maybe you want a thing and you don't get the things, so you get angry. Those things that we so desperately want, we covet them and we kill to get them. You probably know people that this set of sins is almost a description of their marriage. Every disagreement turns into a battle. Every battle turns into a war, and soon we have a nuclear meltdown. One little spark sets things off when the husband says the wrong thing. Oh yeah, I'll show you. Let me pour some gas on that. You can't talk to me like that. Here's some oxygen. Here's a hand grenade. All right, watch out, kids. Here comes the napalm. And it builds into this explosive argument. When he was alive, Steve Jobs was a brilliant driver of technology, consumer interest. He made Apple one of the most valuable companies in the world. Uh, His legacy lives on after him. But he was infamous for abusive language towards anyone who failed him. Staff, suppliers, even people he reported to. He could inspire brilliance, but he could also tear people apart. And I've heard people debate whether his abusive language helped him accomplish all that he did because everyone feared to let him down. Those who believe it helped his business generally use it as justification for his behavior. Now, it's impossible to know for sure whether it helped his business or not, but whether it helped his business or not, it was clearly sinful. We don't judge morality based on whether it produces good financial results. And yet people often justify abusive language by the results they get from it. This is a big one for parents to think about. You can probably get short-term positive results from your children by using abusive language, but you'll pay for it in the long term. And even though it may seem successful and it may be successful in that sense, it isn't pleasing to God. Put away obscene talk. Put away abusive language. After this list, Paul adds one more vice. Do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Now, specifically, he's saying do not lie to Christians in the body of Christ. And he's not suggesting that lying outside of the church is okay and inside the church is wrong. He's simply highlighting this responsibility we have among God's people. Do not lie to each other. Now, lying is saying something false to someone who has a right to know the truth. Or saying less than the whole truth when only the whole truth communicates reality. It's deceiving. And yet lying is a very common part of our world. Most often we lie in one form or another when we believe that the truth will harm us. We believe the lie that our lie will protect us. We think we can avoid the consequences of the truth. That it's better to lie 
and avoid the consequences than to tell the truth and face the consequences. A former U.S. senator and presidential candidate once said, A lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in trouble. And that's often how we think about it. We think the lie will help us, and so we withhold truth from someone who deserves to know the truth. Your wife has a right to know the truth. Your husband has a right to know the truth. Your children have a right to know the truth. Your parents have a right to know the truth. Maybe you don't lie at home, but you lie in the business world. Perhaps not an outright lie, but just stretching the truth. Are you willing to lie to get things done? Over-promising a little, under-delivering a little, stretching the truth just to make the sale. Lies characterize Satan, not God. And lies characterize the kingdom of Satan, not the kingdom of God. Which kingdom do you belong to? Do not lie to one another. So if we're going to live with Christ as all and in all, we have to put away sin. Put away sin. Your behavior, your language, represent Christ. So whether at work or at home or at church or at play, how you speak and how you act represents Christ. And would people look at your actions? Would people hear the words that you say? And would they say, that is what Christ must be like? We have to ask ourselves, individually as a church, do we represent Christ well? Put away sin. Second key theme, live based on your new identity in Christ. Live based on your new identity in Christ. In Christ. So putting away sin is one aspect of living with Christ as all and in all. You also have to actively pursue life based on your new identity in Christ. So let's pick up right at the beginning of verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Here's why. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. You have, it says, put off the old self and put on the new self. You have put off one set of clothes and put on a different set of clothes. Now some propose Paul could be referring to a ritual uh, change of clothes that was associated with baptism. Uh, That ritual actually started more like the second century. It's probably, he wouldn't have even known of it yet. Think more like military uniforms we talked earlier. Uh, The military uniform represents that you belong to this country's military. You represent this country. But in our case, we actually switched kingdoms. We were in one kingdom wearing one uniform, and we changed kingdoms and changed uniforms. We were wearing the kingdom of Satan's uniform, and we've put on the kingdom of Christ's uniform. We were in the kingdom of darkness, now we're in the kingdom of light. The old clothes got thrown out, and a new set of clothes got put on. 
We're no longer identified with the kingdom of darkness. We're now identified with the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Christian, this is something you have already done in Christ. God transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. Your old self belongs to that kingdom, but your new self belongs to the kingdom of Christ. More specifically, the new self is Christ himself, your identification with Christ. You have put on the new humanity in Christ. The old self, the old world's kingdom, our connection to it, the new self, Christ, our connection to Christ. We still have this strong influence by the world, but we're seeking to be conformed to Christ. We're in Christ's realm in some senses, and yet we still live in the kingdom of Satan. We've left one family, we've entered a new family, we've left one identity, we've entered a new identity. We've put off the old person, we've put on the new person, Christ. Galatians 3 highlights this reality. I want you to turn there. It's just to the left, a dozen pages or so. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 27. Galatians 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We have put on Christ. The new self is Christ. And then in Galatians, we see these similar pairs of contrasting people, Jews and Greeks, slave and free. Go ahead and turn back to Colossians, if you would. We're going to look at those here in a minute. By faith in Christ, our connection to Christ, we've been totally transformed. We have taken off our old self, our connection to the kingdom of darkness, and we have put on the new self, Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, it's important for you to understand that as we discuss these sins that God commands us to put away, the only way we have the ability to put these sins away is Christ. Our sin is so central to our reality that the only way we can overcome sin is by putting off our old life and putting on Christ. We have to have the death of Christ applied to us. So you can't fix the problem just by trying to stop doing these sins. The problem of sin can only be fixed through Christ, by putting off the old self and putting on Christ. In faith, acknowledging we're wicked, vile, defiled sinners, and our only hope is to be redeemed by Jesus Christ himself. Our only hope is that Christ died in our place. Look at verse 10. We have, verse 10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So Paul isn't referring here to an old self and a new self that are still in us battling it out. No, the old self is put away. It's gone, even though we still live in this realm of sin, this realm of the flesh. We've completely changed uniforms. But this new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The new life is the starting point, the new creation. 
This isn't just some battling of vices and sins. What we need is total transformation. And what Christ gives his people is total transformation. But the new self does need continual renewal. And this renewal is after the image of our creator. So being renewed in knowledge, in knowledge refers to the knowledge of Christ that Paul has so powerfully been describing for us here in Colossians, who he is, what he's done, how he reconciles us to God, how all things belong to him. Being renewed after the image of his creator harkens back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God created man in his own image, male and female. But mankind is still made in the image of God, and yet that image is distorted by our fall into sin and decay. However, Jesus is the true image of God. Jesus is the one who created all things. Jesus is the author of creation. And when we are renewed into the image of Jesus, when we're fully renewed into that image, then we will be fully renewed into the image of God. So we live based on this new identity in Christ. We have put on Christ and we are renewed into the image of Christ. And so we live for Christ. We put off all these old vices because we have put on the new self. What is true of us in Christ causes us to put away sin. In verse 11, God's word shows us our identification with Christ supersedes the other things that are true of us. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And the Jews were God's chosen people, descendants of Abraham, along with the others who joined to the nation by faith. Greeks here is simply referring to Gentiles, those who were not Jewish. And prior to Jesus Christ, there was this strong religious, national, cultural, and ethnic distinction. This distinction is highlighted by the next contrast, circumcised and uncircumcised. The Jewish practice of circumcision was considered barbaric by the Greco-Roman Empire, And on the other hand, the Jews considered anyone not circumcised as pagan, totally outside, separated from God. And God's word tells us these barriers have been broken down in Christ. In Christ, these distinctions are no longer to divide God's people. Now, barbarians and Scythians is a distinction that has challenged translators. The other three pairings here all clearly contrast each other. And this one seems to be more of an intensification. Barbarians represented those outside the the Greco-Roman Empire who spoke unknown languages. The word barbarian originally came from the mocking of other languages. Oh, they just all say bar, 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 bar. Uh, It was the same sort of sinful mocking of other languages that people do today. Um, By the time Paul's writing, barbarian was simply the word that they used for these other people's. Barbarians were considered uncultured. Scythians were considered to be extremely uncultured. They're like the worst of the barbarians. But what Paul has done here is put them on an exactly equal playing field with the other groups. Paul does the exact same thing with slaves and free people. Slaves were considered lower than free people. They had fewer rights. They were considered to be lesser people. But Paul put slave and free on 
perfectly equal terms and on equal terms with the other groups. Whatever a person's perception about people they consider other, they're all one in Christ. People are all equal in Christ. These distinctions are all secondary to Christ. Douglas Moo writes, Those who belong to Christ represent a new humanity in which the distinctions of this world, while not obliterated, are minimized. The Christian community is comprised of people who maintain their familial, gender, and social identities. Jews are still Jews in Christ. Gentiles are still Gentiles in Christ. Slaves are still slaves in Christ. But these earthly identities are no longer what is most important. Solidarity in Christ is now the ruling paradigm of the new community. The new humanity is inclusive of every nation and social class. Your heritage is an important part of who you are. You wouldn't be who you are without your heritage, but your heritage is not as important as Christ. Now, this is an issue that the church in this country has failed at pretty significantly for the past few centuries. In many churches, non-white ethnicities were second-class citizens at best and simply unwelcome in other cases, considered inferior, asked to sit in the back, perhaps even with their own separate entrance to the loft, not welcome at our seminaries. And the church today is still paying the price for the ethnic damage that the church has done historically, both in ongoing sinful relationships and understandings and perspectives, and also in the way it has damaged relationships. But this is what a twisted understanding of the gospel does to us. If your gospel doesn't view Christ as more central to who we are than ethnicity or nationality or economic status, or level of sophistication, you've got the wrong gospel. If your gospel doesn't view Christ as more central to who we are than anything else, then you've got the wrong gospel. Consider this statement that in Christ there is not slave and free. Now think about what that means for your work the janitor should be just as important to you on a personal level as the CEO. And sure, the CEO can fire you and the janitor probably can't, unless you're the assistant janitor. But you can't consider one to be more valuable than the other. In seminary, I took a one-week class up in Fort Worth. Uh, That's where my seminary's main campus was. I was eating lunch in the cafeteria one day and sat down with some people I didn't know and a couple of them were wearing maintenance outfits and over the course of the conversation I asked one man if he was doing maintenance full time and he said no I'm actually on the board of trustees. Uh, He just enjoyed mowing lawns as a way to serve the seminary and so of course there he was hanging out as a board of director with seminary students and other maintenance workers. That is someone who gets it. He sees all those people as equal to him. There's no social hierarchy in the church. And maybe you've unintentionally created barriers with other Christians, even in your own church. You didn't plan it, but you only end up spending time with Christians who are 
the same ethnicity as you. All your friends share your political views. Your closest friends are all middle class like you. Your friends have all made the same education choices for their children that you've made for your children. We don't have to aim to do that. It just kind of comes naturally to us. But what is supernatural is when the only thing in common about your various relationships is Christ himself. When you seek out people who are different than you in human terms because they are like you where it actually matters. We have to ask ourselves if we are a church that is equally welcoming to people regardless of their background or life situation. Is this a place where no matter what brought you to church, you are welcome in the church? We certainly aim for that, but we have to ask ourselves, are we succeeding? Do people who visit feel like they are other based on the conversations that we have, the things we say, the things we do, how we look at them, how they look at us? Do we have blind spots that make it harder for others to connect with us? Where we are in some way projecting that there are things other than Christ that you need to be or to have in order to be part of the body. Christ is what is central about us, and we are to keep him central in everything of us. We're going to wrap up the same way our section does, the end of verse 11, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Your new identity is Christ. Now, the Greek language had different rules for sentence order than we do. Uh, Sentences could be arranged in different ways, but one common pattern is to assign importance to certain words by either placing them at the very beginning of the sentence or the very end. So if a word could fit somewhere else in the sentence, but you wanted to highlight it, you place it at the beginning or the end. And in this sentence, Christ comes at the very end, but all and in all, Christ. Christ himself is central. Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Christ indwells all Christians, regardless of ethnicity, nationality, social status. We are one new humanity in Christ, made into the image of Christ and being renewed in the image of Christ. Salvation is all of Christ. We did not add to it. We cannot contribute to it. We cannot improve it. All creation is about Christ created in, by, through, for Christ. The new creation is about Christ. The family of God is made through Christ. We exist for Christ. Christ is our all. Christ is in all believers regardless of our backgrounds. As they say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is really important for you to understand. Jesus Christ is central to understanding God and his creation rightly. Jesus demonstrates God's wrath against sin because he took God's wrath for the sin of his people. And because he's coming one day to execute God's wrath against his enemies. But Jesus also demonstrates God's grace and mercy. Because in Jesus, his people are forgiven. Christ is all and in all. Christ is first in our relationships. Christ is first in our work and in our labors. Christ is first in our finances. Christ is first in our hobbies. Christ is all and in all.
live with Christ as all and in all. Put away sin. Live based on your new identity in Christ. Live with Christ as all and in all. Let's pray to him. Jesus Christ, you are the lamb who is worthy to be slain. You never sinned. You lived on this earth with your creation. People sinning against you all the time. And you never sinned in return. You are worthy to be slain in our place. Lord, help us to see our own desperate wickedness. And help us to see your glory and grace, your mercy, that you would die for sinners like us. Father, we praise you that you would send your Son to earth for us. Spirit, we praise you for opening our hearts to your truth. And we ask that even now you would help people to turn from sin and to pursue Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.